Amen. And now we get to talk about this Lord of all, Jesus, our Messiah. If you'll open your Bibles, please, to uh, Luke chapter 20. As we are continuing to march through the Gospel of Luke, I'll forewarn you now that I bit off a little bit more than I could chew this week. I know you're probably saying, what's new? But uh, we're going to keep trying to plow through the Gospel here, and there's just a lot of richness in what we're going to see today. Um, we're in Luke chapter 20. We're going to look at verses uh, 19 through uh, 40. And our passage comes in the middle of a section here where the Jewish leadership uh, have been presenting challenges to Jesus. Now, just to kind of give ourselves a little bit of the chronology context here, this is the last week of Jesus' life, sometimes referred to as Holy Week. And this happens to be, our passage happens to be taking place on Tuesday of that week. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. He has uh, gone through this triumphal procession from these outlying villages outside of Jerusalem to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And that triumphal procession really ramped up the opposition of the, of the Jewish leadership. They had witnessed Jesus' disciples uh, acclaiming, acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah. They were celebrating His coming reign. So they were obviously ramped up. Their, their opposition was starting. It's been running throughout the gospel. It really kind of is really coming to a head here, right? It's really coming to the, to the foreground. That opposition was further solidified on the next day, on Monday, when Jesus came into the temple and cleansed the temple throughout the, overturned the, the tables of the money changers, uh, cleared out all of the merchandise, the selling there that was happening in the temple courts. And then as he continues on into Tuesday, Jesus continues to teach and preach as it was seems to be his custom that last week. Every day he's going into the temple to preach and teach. He's doing miraculous works, Matthew tells us. And so all this is happening, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and the Jewish leaders are just really now just incensed and angry. Their opposition is solidifying, it's strengthening as they are looking for an opportunity to move against Jesus. They, they want to destroy him. We saw that last week in chapter 19, verse 47. They sought to destroy him after Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants. It says they really were even more determined to, to lay their hands on him. At that very hour, they wanted to, to lay their hands on him to destroy him. The only thing that's holding them back, though, is Jesus' immense popularity, right? He is loved and he's adored by the people. And the leaders, the Jewish leaders, are fearful of the reaction that they might get from the people if they move against Jesus. It would potentially result in the loss of their own power or even worse, the loss of their own lives. So their strategy at this point now seems to be to try to trap Jesus in his words. They want to force him to take an unfavorable position on any number of thorny religious and political issues. They, by putting Jesus sort of in this, in this no man's land, they can maybe force him to, to say something that could cause the, the populace, the people to turn against him. Or they could use those very words and present Jesus, kind of present him to the Roman official as being someone who was, who was treasonous. Or perhaps he would say something blasphemous that would really solidify their own position against him. They want, to, they want to find something to give them some cover. Well, the first attempt at doing this came in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. The Jewish leaders questioned Jesus as to the source and nature of his authority. But Jesus, you remember if we were here last week, turned the tables on them, Right? Instead of answering their question, he asked them a question about the nature of, of John's authority, the authority of John's baptism. 
What was the nature of his authority to baptize? What was the source of his authority to baptize? And they debated amongst themselves there for a few moments, but they ultimately responded, you know, we don't know, right? They, they, they knew, but they wanted to, they wanted to feign ignorance. Well, we don't really know. They, they put on a show, if you will. They, they refused to answer Jesus. And so Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and he exposes their treachery by telling this parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, that warned not just the Jewish leaders, but the people themselves of joining in against the leaders as, as they are really moving in rebellion against God and against his Messiah. In moving to destroy Jesus, the leaders were really solidifying their own condemnation. And today we have two additional encounters where the Jewish leaders continue this, this process, right? They continue to kind of lay out their strategy or try to work their strategy of trying to trap Jesus in his words. And we see that in verses 19 through 20. Let's read our passage. Luke 20, beginning in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any questions. We're going to look at each of these two sections of the dialogue here in order. And I want us to keep two things in mind as we go through this passage. First, Jesus is dealing with real theological questions. And so it's natural for us to want to know the answer to these questions and for these answers to have meaning for us in our own discipleship. There are things here that Jesus teaches that are important for us to believe as disciples and for us to do as disciples. But I don't want us to forget the larger context of what's happening here. That's probably the most important thing that needs to be communicated in this passage. We need to see these dialogues in their context. We want to ask the question, ultimately, how do these debates play into the overarching story of redemption that is being written in the gospel? So first up, we have verses 20 to 26, 
in which we see Jesus teaching or commenting on this question from these spies to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This dialogue, this confrontation, if you will, this debate, follows on the heels of the parable of the wicked tenants back in verses 9 through 18. And there the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, after Jesus had told this parable, huddled together to deliberate their strategy. And so, instead of confronting Jesus for a second time, and just sort of, sort of outright bringing up to him another question, because they've already asked him a question back in verses 1 through 8, this time it says that they sent spies in verse 20. And these spies pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him, catch Jesus in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Right? So they are pretending to be spies. They're not really after the truth. They are simply pretending to be sincere. The word sincere in the Greek just means righteous. They are pretending to be righteous. They are pretending to seek the way of truth. They're pretending to know how to really act and to really get a good, obvious answer to this. How are we to do, what, how are we to respond to this question of taxation that Caesar has imposed on us? But really, it's all a, it's all a show. It's all for pretend. They simply are trying to catch Jesus saying something that they can then transform and use against him as they bring a cause of action to the Roman governor. Before the questioning, though, we see that they, they really buttered Jesus up, right? They are, they are, they are, it says that they pretended to be sincere. They, they are deceptive in their sincerity. They, they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but teach truly the way of God. I mean, they're, they're laying it on thick, right? They're really letting their, their pretense come to the foreground. They acknowledge that Jesus teaches the truth that comes from God. But their hypocrisy is striking because if the spies and the religious leaders who sent them really believed this, they would have listened to Jesus intently and responded to him in repentance and faith. If they really believed what they've just said about Jesus, they would have acted much differently before they've arrived at this point. But their words are merely a cover for their real intentions. And so they ask him in verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? The question here is the legitimacy of the Roman poll tax, or the Roman census tax for the Jewish people. In the year AD 6, Caesar Augustus instituted an imperial poll tax or a census tax upon all non-Romans living in the Roman-occupied territories. So if you were not a Roman citizen, but you were living in Roman control, a Roman-controlled part of the empire, you were responsible, each person was responsible to pay this poll tax. We call it sometimes a census tax because each person had to pay it. That's why they would have to go and travel to their city of origin at times to be able to identify themselves as a person who is living in this, in this Roman province and then pay this, this tax, this, this poll tax. The levy was for one denarius. The denarius was a Roman coin that approximately equated a day's wage for the average Jewish laborer. So if you were an ordinary Jewish laborer, you went to work for a day, your wage was a denarius. So the tax essentially amounts to the equivalent of one day's pay per year. And you might be thinking, hey, that's, that's a pretty good deal, right? That sounds pretty good to me. But the problem is that for most Jews, this would have been a very severe financial burden to pay this one denarius tax to Caesar. Now, most Jews abhorred paying taxes to Rome in general, but this tax was particularly offensive for two reasons. 
First of all, paying taxes with Caesar's image and inscription on the coin constituted idolatry and blasphemy. Caesar's image on the coin violated the second commandment. I have a, a, an example, Doug. If you want to go to the picture, go uh, one more. There we go. So this is the denarius coin, and on the left side is the front side of the coin, and that is the image of Tiberius Caesar. That was a, the image, the, the picture of the Roman emperor. And just having that image inscribed on that coin or engraven on that coin would have violated the second commandment. You remember that Exodus chapter 20 Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. But there's also an inscription on the coin. You can see on both sides. On the front side, the inscription reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the, of the divine Augustus. Okay, referring there to Caesar Augustus, right? The one that uh, labeled the, or that, that sent out the decree for everyone to go back to their hometown to be registered for this census, right? Remember that back in chapter 2? Caesar Augustus, his son Tiberius, became uh, the emperor about 14 AD or, AD or so. And so on this coin, he is acknowledging that he is the son of Caesar, but he refers to this, he refers to Caesar Augustus as the divine Augustus. He is inscribing or ascribing uh, the status of deity to his father. Now, a monotheistic Jew who held the Shema, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's no other God before me, first of the commandments. They could not affirm that decree. So this coin is blasphemous. On the back side, the right, uh, the right figure, the back side of the coin, the inscription read, High Priest, Maxim Pontus, High Priest, which acknowledged that Caesar was Rome's religious was Rome's supreme religious leader. He was the high priest of the Roman religion. As the Roman religion affirmed the multiplicity of gods and did not recognize the supremacy of Yahweh in all things, a monotheistic Jew, faithful to the Mosaic Covenant, could not make that affirmation. So using the coin and paying the tax for most Jews amounted to idolatry. The very coin that is used to pay the imperial poll tax, violated the creed and the convictions of the Jews. How could they, as a honorable Jew, as a Jew in good standing with the Jewish faith, acquiesce to this policy without offending God? Most of them couldn't. And therefore, they couldn't and shouldn't pay the tax. The second reason why this tax was offensive to most Jews was because in paying the tax to Caesar, they would be acknowledging Roman sovereignty over themselves. They would be acknowledging Roman sovereignty over the Jews. Most Jews opposed Roman sovereignty as illegitimate because it denied Yahweh's sovereignty and Yahweh's supremacy over his own people. You might remember back in Exodus chapter 19, after the Exodus, after God had parted the Red Sea and Israel had gone through on dry, land, on, on dry land and God brought them to Mount Sinai and brought them to the place where he would make a covenant with them, he said this to them in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. If you will indeed be obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
So paying the tax to Caesar meant that they were accepting Caesar's rule over them. And by accepting Caesar's rule over them in their minds, they were violating the very heart of the covenant where they promised to be God's people and God promised to be their God. They were God's people. God was their God. Only God had the right to rule over them. And so they felt the compunction. They felt the need that they could not pay this tax. It was not lawful to pay this tax. In fact, the word lawful there in verse 22 really gets to the question of authority. What is lawful? Who has the authority to determine the payment of taxes? Is it Caesar? Is Caesar right to impose this tax upon the Jews? Are Jews compelled to bow their knee to Caesar and pay him what he demands? Or does the authority belong to God and to his law? Are the Jews justified to withhold payment from Caesar? Does God's sovereignty require that all Jews resist the payment of this tax? Now, if we take the spies' hypocrisy and deception out of the equation for just a moment, all right, let's, let's take that out. That's important, but let's take it out for a moment. Let's try to see this as a legitimate question. If, this is a, if, they, if they were truth seekers really wanting to know what to do, this question really places Jesus on the horns of an impossible dilemma. If Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish leadership can paint Jesus as seditious, treasonous, anti-Roman, a danger to the state, because it would have encouraged the people to incite violence against Rome, to lead an insurrection in some ways. Jesus here, by giving, saying this answer, by saying, no, it's not lawful, would have fueled a, a passion, an anti-Roman passion among the people that would have certainly been out, become out of control. And so the Jewish leaders could paint Jesus as anti-Roman, as being a, a danger to the state, because the Romans wanted peace, right? The Pax Romana, that's what they wanted. They wanted peace. They wanted civility in all of their provinces. And so since Jesus is not a Roman citizen, it would have just been very easy to eliminate him as a threat. If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he risks alienating himself from the people. He, he would have uh, seen his popularity erode. The tax, again, was particularly offensive and oppressive to many Jews. They saw it as an illegitimate tax. It was very unpopular. So Jesus' support by saying yes would ca- have caused an erosion of support that would have, again, given the religious leaders an easier path to achieve their aims of destroying Jesus. So either way, it seems like is a, is a bad answer. It doesn't, it's not going to come out good for Jesus. It's, it's almost as if he cannot win and the religious leaders cannot lose. And perhaps the religious leaders here, the spies, are really like, yeah, we got him now. We, we, we've got him. We've got him trapped. There's no way out of this. Except Jesus answers with great wisdom and understanding. And so he... As he begins his response in verse 23, we see that he, he really cuts through their hypocrisy and their deception. He, he sees it and, and he understands it and he, he's going to answer them with great wisdom and, and really show them to be the fools that they really are, the hypocrites that they really are. First of all, in verse 24, it says that he asks them for a coin. Show me a denarius, he says. And then he asks them the, about the image of the inscription, which I just showed you a moment ago, that's on the coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? 
And the spies respond back, it's Caesar's, right? The, the image in the inscription, they belong to Caesar. Now, before Jesus answers the question, let's just stop here for a second. The mere fact of asking them for a denarius is exposing their hypocrisy. They've got a denarius in their pocket, at least one denarius in their pocket. If they really did not want to pay this tax, if they really hated the, and saw this tax as offensive, they would not have used the money to begin with. If it was a problem to pay the tax because of the image and inscription, it would have also been a problem to use this money for all of their other financial needs. So they're not really representing, representing accurately Jewish antagonism to paying Caesar's taxes. They're keeping the money in their pocket to use for whatever is convenient. But Jesus answers the question anyway. So he is exposing their hypocrisy, their deception. Show me denarius. They pull one out. We use it. It's offensive for paying a tax, but it's not offensive for anything else. But then he answers the question, verse 25, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus doesn't answer with a simple yes or no, but he answers with great wisdom. And this response requires appropriate application. He asks here the question, or he answers here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So let's ask, what belongs to Caesar? In the context of this passage, what belongs to Caesar? Well, it's the coin. The coin belongs to Caesar. It bears his image and his inscription. So Jesus here is implying to the Jews that they pay their taxes to Rome. While they are indeed God's people living in a covenant relationship with God, the Jews are also people who live within the boundaries of the Roman Empire. They are subject to Caesar's rule and authority. And this is by God's divine design. This is by his sovereignty. God has ordained this situation for his people. Caesar has been given to the Jews to maintain civil order and the public good. And so the Jewish people should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They should give Caesar the coin that bears his image and inscription. But notice he doesn't stop there. He continues on that they are also to render to God the things that are God's. And what belongs to God? Let's make the parallel here. What belongs to Caesar? The coin. Why? Because it bears his image and his inscription. What belongs to God? Those things that bear his image and inscription. And what is that? It's us. It's people. Jesus is asking them this question. What belongs to God? He's kind of implying this question. What belongs to God? Those things that bear his image an inscription. Who is that? It is themselves. It's their lives. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 in creation, we read this about the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. So the Jews bear the image of God. What about the inscription? We read this in Exodus chapter 28, verses 36 to 38. As they are constructing the tabernacle and all of the priestly garments, there is this provision. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban. It shall regularly be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the, whole, the high priest was to wear a turban, and on this turban was to be this plaque, if you will, this engraving, 
that said, holy to the Lord. And as the priest is representing God's people before God, it was a reminder that this people, not just the priest, but the entire people were holy to the Lord. And that is conveyed by this inscription. I also love Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, where God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The Jews bear God's image and inscription. Therefore, they must give themselves to God. They must honor God with their lives. Because they are his people called by his name. So Jesus here sees no inconsistency between paying taxes to Rome and honoring God with one's life. In fact, they should do both. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't stop here just for a moment and just try to make some brief application of this to our own lives. Again, like as I said, this is an important question and it has impact for our own discipleship. So I probably need to make a whole other sermon out of this, but we'll just leave this for here for right now. What application can we make about this? Four things I think we can make based on this passage and the rest of Scripture. All right? We have to kind of use the rest of Scripture here to help interpret what Jesus is referring to. First, I think Jesus is implicitly affirming the goodness of civil government. In other words, God has instituted civil government for the benefit of all people, including his people. We live in this world and God has ordained, just as he has ordained marriage to regulate the home, and he's ordained church to regulate the, the worship life of his people, the community of his people, so also God has ordained civil government to do his work in keeping a civil society, to keeping order and, and, and advancing the public good for our society. Even when civil government is ruled by wicked men who oppose God and advance godless agendas, the civil government still exists by God's design and initiative. And he has invested civil government with his authority. Second, Christians are to submit themselves to civil government in accordance with God's will. Again, there's, these things overlap for the people of God. Submission and obedience to civil authority is a necessary part of Christian discipleship. Being a good citizen of our country is an important part of being a Christian. Okay? Those two things are not equated. But as a Christian who lives in this country, it is incumbent upon me to be a good citizen. And I would just say, read more in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. If we try to apply what Jesus says here to the direct question of taxes, I think what Jesus says to us as well is, pay your taxes. In fact, Paul says that in Romans 13. Give to whom, pay your taxes to whom taxes are due. Give to whom, give your revenue to whom revenue is due, right? So we as Christians should be faithful in paying our taxes as we have been directed by our government. On other matters where civil government has domain and does not encroach on the things that are rightfully God's, then we should gladly and honorably submit ourselves to it. The government should have no better citizens living within its borders than Christians. Third, because we are created in the image of God and are called by his name, we belong to God. God has a claim on our lives and we are under his authority. He has created us for his divine purpose and glory. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we should and must give ourselves to God in all that we do. 
Our lives are to be given to God. Why? Because our lives bear his image and his inscription. Fourth, and last one, in this aspect of it, these two directives, to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, are not necessarily incompatible or mutually exclusive. In other words, there's not always a conflict between these two things. These two things, being a good Christian, being a good citizen of our, of our country, are not necessarily incompatible things. They're not mutually ex- exclusive. We can do both. In fact, on many occasions, rendering to Caesar is at the same time rendering to God. But when the two make contrary demands, or when Caesar demands something that rightly belongs to God, for example, our worship, we cannot worship Caesar, right? Then we must obey God rather than men. And this is the testimony of the disciples in Acts chapter, well, the first, well, all of the Acts, really. And I'm thinking particularly about Acts chapters 3 and 4, when the religious leaders say you shouldn't be preaching Christ anymore. In Acts chapter 5, when they're called into the Sanhedrin once again, and they say this very thing, we must obey God rather than men. It is important for us that when these two things, when Caesar and God give contrary orders, that our allegiance is ultimately to God, and we serve him. So Jesus answers the question, trying to make some application to us, Let's round things out in verse 26, where we see that the spies, really their plans backfire, right? They fail in their, in their quest, and they really act wrongly beyond that. Instead of entrapping Jesus in his words, it says that they marveled at him, verse 26. Instead of silencing Jesus, they were silenced. But notice what is not said. They did not repent. They did not accept Jesus as the divinely sent Messiah. They did not entrust themselves to Jesus for salvation. And so by not accepting Jesus, they rejected him. By not submitting themselves to Jesus, they continued to oppose him. And that really is sort of, again, the main overarching point in this passage, right? That's what's central to this. And the main application that we can draw from this passage is that you cannot be indifferent to Jesus. It's not sufficient just to be marvel, to marvel at him. We cannot be indifferent to Jesus. There is no fence sitting with regard to Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. When we are confronted with Jesus, we either accept him as God's provision for our salvation by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ, or we reject him. So the call of Jesus here, the call of the Gospel of Luke, the call of the New Testament, the call of the entire Bible is entrust yourself to Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, that's the main point here. That's the main point of the Bible. Look at your life, see your need for Him, and then turn to Him in faith and be saved. And if you are a Christian, keep trusting in Christ. He is God's provision for you, not just for this moment, but for all of your life and for all of your eternity. And we are challenged by this to continue to keep pressing into Jesus, to continue to keep walking with Him to not become indifferent to him, to not become adverse to him, but to continue to hand in hand walk with him all the way through and persevere to the end. Of course here, the danger of rejecting Jesus is the promise of God's eternal judgment. He will judge the wicked who remain in their sins. The warnings of the judgment to come here are prevalent and they are strident. Do not be opponents of Jesus in your rejection of him. And it brings us then to this second passage where the Sadducees are 
asking about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the resurrection of the dead, and Jesus is affirming the resurrection, verses 27 to 40. The Sadducees, now we have a new set of opponents here. And this, they sort of come almost, I see this in my mind, almost like in wave after wave. You have the chief priests, the scribes, the elders sort of coming in. You have these, these, these spies that have come in. Then you have the Pharisees, Matthew and Mark have the, uh, sorry, the Sadducees. Matthew and Mark have the, the Pharisees and scribes coming after, almost in wave after wave after wave of confronting Jesus and trying to entrap him in his words. This next group here is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the main uh, religious sects in Judaism, one of three main religious sects in Judaism. They were an aristocratic class, made up of the priests and the priestly families, those who supported the priests, they're all kind of part of the Sadducee party. The Sadducees were very pro-Roman because the Romans allowed them vast domain over the religious ceremonies of the Jews. The, the Romans weren't dictating what the Jews could or could not do with regard to their worship. So they had a lot of autonomy in their, in their priestly undertaking. Concerning their religious beliefs, there are a couple of important ones that stand out. First, they did not believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in any sort of supernatural beings other than, than God himself. They only accepted the Torah, the first five books of Moses, as authoritative scripture. And they denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied an afterlife. They denied a reckoning of the good and the bad, right? The, there was no system of rewards or punishments based on how one lived in this life. So they were, we would call them today, very theologically liberal in their belief system. And so they present Jesus with a question that they intend will prove the absurdity of the resurrection from the dead. Again, really trying to trap Jesus in his words, because if Jesus says, uh, if Jesus affirms their situation here, it really shows, well, the resurrection is kind of all messed up, right? So their case in verses 28 through 32 involves a practice known as Leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is a biblical practice, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, where a man who dies without children, his brothers are, in order of age, are supposed to marry his widow and produce children for him. Alright, so it's just an example. Assume for a moment I don't have five children. Let's assume that Chris and I are childless. I die. Under this system, my brother is required to marry my wife and have children on my behalf. So those children would not be considered my brother's children, they would be considered mine. Right? So that's this practice. It's, we see it in the book of Ruth. We see it in the book of Genesis and uh, one of the, the sons of Jacob. This was a biblical practice, and the Sadducees are using this scenario to try to undermine this idea of the resurrection. You have this man with six other brothers. He, he gets married, but he dies with no children. And so each brother, in turn, marries the widow, but they have no children in the process. So at the end of the whole thing, this woman's been married seven times, so she has no children, and she dies herself. And their question is, when the day of resurrection comes, which they don't believe in, whose wife is she going to be? She's had seven husbands. Which one? She can't have seven husbands in the resurrection. Which husband will be her legitimate husband? So... Jesus is forced to face this question, right? If Jesus denies the resurrection, well, then the Sadducees will have successfully placed a wedge between him and the people, again, eroding his popularity, making an easier path to destroy him. But if Jesus justifies the resurrection, then he's left with this absurd hypothetical with a woman married to seven brothers in the afterlife. 
And how could Jesus certainly be a wise teacher with that kind of reasoning? So Jesus responds. How does he do so? Well, first, as we've seen in the last passage, Jesus answers the question directly in verses 34 to 36. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, first of all, Jesus rejects the premise of the Sadducees' question. There's no need to be concerned about whose wife this woman will be because there is no marriage in heaven, right? Instead, those who die in the resurrection will be like angels in this particular aspect. Not that we are angels. You guys know one of my pet peeves is when someone dies, they, they, they don't become angels. There are all the times people saying, oh, heaven gained another angel. No, they're not getting another angel. Okay? You do not transform to become an angel when you die. All right? That, that really undermines the whole biblical worldview, the whole purpose of redemption. You do not become an angel when you die. But in this aspect, we are like the angels in the sense that we take on the same kind of life that they have now, right? There is no marriage of angels, and therefore, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. There's no need for the state of marriage. We marry and are given in marriage now only in this life. Now, let's talk about this for a minute, because I think this is important. Marriage is God's gift to all human beings. It's a gift that provides for our companionship, for our mutual enjoyment of one another, for the procreation of children. We say that in weddings, right? So we as God's people should take marriage seriously. Certainly we should defend and advocate for the sanctity and integrity of marriage in this age that seeks to undermine and redefine and ridicule the institution of marriage. Certainly we should be committed and faithful in our own marriages. Even more, we should work to display God-glorifying marriages where the purposes of God for marriage are lived out and celebrated and enjoyed. We should strive and labor to see God glorified in our marriages, where husbands are lovingly serving their wives and wives are graciously and willingly submitting to their husbands. So just as a brief, quick point of application, don't be complacent about your marriage. God gave it as a gift to us in this life. And so we should be devoting ourselves to one another. Okay? Second thing that Jesus teaches here that's important is that marriage does not exist in heaven because its purpose no longer exists. God gave the institution of marriage for two reasons. First, as I just said a moment ago, for the practical needs of daily life. For companionship, for mutual enjoyment, for procreation, for the organization of society. Those are important purposes. God gave marriage to us for those things. But I don't think that's the main purpose of marriage. The main reason why God instituted marriage, as Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, is to illustrate the gospel. Marriage is an illustration of the reality of the gospel. In marriage, we see the beautiful relationship between Christ and the church lived out. Husbands lovingly laying down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his life for his own bride, the church. And wives graciously and willingly submitting themselves to their husbands as the church submits to Christ as her Lord. So why will marriage not continue? If it beautifully illustrates the gospel, why shouldn't we continue to see this in the day of resurrection? Because in the age to come, the image, what we see now, will give way 
to the reality. We won't need a picture to remind us of this truth. We'll be living the fullness of this truth. Marriage will no longer be necessary because the shadow will have become the substance. So Jesus is using this hypothetical situation that the Sadducees present to him to teach us that the day and effect of resurrection is more than just continuing our earthly existence on into the future. It says, it teaches us that resurrection, the day of resurrection, is an entirely new day with an entirely new reality. So that's the direct answer that Jesus... So they ask this absurd question, Jesus gives them an answer to deconstruct their question. But Jesus also goes a a bit further to take the opportunity to affirm the doctrine of the resurrection. Here the Sadducees have been trying to undermine it, so Jesus is going to affirm it. Now, the Sadducees, as I mentioned earlier, only accept the Torah as authoritative scripture. But again, in the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of Jesus, Jesus uses that very Torah to defend the resurrection. It's not easy to do. There's no sentence, there's no verse that specifically says the dead will rise, right? But Jesus interprets the scriptures faithfully. And he cites here in verses 37 and 38, Exodus, and he doesn't cite it, he alludes to it, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God reveals to Moses at the burning bush that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. And he connects this revelation of who he is, the God who is, the God who lives, the God who exists, with the fact that he is the same God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with them. And there are two explanations for why this is important. First, God identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. Notice he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, He says, I am. He is. He is. Verse 37. He, he, verse 38, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a God, he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. So, if we understand that God exists, that he is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then they too must still exist. That they will be raised to life. And the second reason is also important because God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they never fully realized. Part of the book of Hebrews is to to tell us, it teaches us, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those are the saints who look forward to the promises of God but never receive them, will one day receive them. The promises will become reality. And that's a big deal. But even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, they will see the fruit of the covenant that God made with them. Indeed, God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living God will resurrect the dead. All will live to God, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though they die, they will still yet live. Now, again, let's put the pause button on here for a moment and and understand why is this important? Why does Jesus go out of his way to defend this doctrine when it's not really the essential issue of their question? In fact, it really is, but Jesus, in answering the question on marriage, goes to defend the doctrine of the resurrection. Why is it important? Because the resurrection is essential to God's plan of redemption. What happens to us as sinners when we sin? Well, what will eventually, ultimately happen to us as sinners when we sin? We will die. The wages of sin is death. God has promised to redeem a people. He cannot have a people if we are dead. 
So part of God's plan of redemption was to raise these sinful people from the dead so that they might live to him. And how is that going to take place? How does that happen? Well, God would send his own son into the world in human flesh to lay down his own life, to die on the cross and be raised again from the dead so that we who are sinners would also one day be raised from the dead and live to God. This idea of resurrection is essential to our salvation. It's not just an important part, it is an essential part. The resurrection is a necessary aspect of the new covenant. Jesus himself, the doctrine of the resurrection itself is important to Jesus and his ministry because what's going to happen a few days from today, this is, this is Tuesday. What's going to happen to him on Friday? He's going to die as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But he cannot remain dead. He must conquer death itself. And so God will raise Jesus to life again. So apart from the resurrection, Jesus cannot save. And we have no hope. Well, after Jesus lays this out, answers the question on marriage, defends the doctrine of the resurrection... It says that there's a response, right? Verse 39, there's a response. Some of the scribes. Now, the scribes are a different group from the Sadducees. They're very theologically conservative. They believe in the resurrection. I can just imagine them over there clapping their hands. Yes, attaboy, Jesus. You go, you go, brother. You tell them. You defend that doctrine, right? Teacher, you have spoken well. And yet, that wasn't the right answer. That wasn't the right answer. I mean, it was. It's truthful. But it was an insufficient answer because what ought they to do if Jesus is God's son, if he is God's Messiah, if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if he is the God of the living and not the dead, what ought they to do? They ought to submit themselves to Jesus. They should bow their knee to him. They should receive him as God's Messiah. They should embrace the salvation that he is giving. But again, they do not repent and they do not believe. And in doing so, they hardened themselves even more to Jesus and they solidify their opposition to him. Opposition that will send him to the cross. And that's really, again, the main point of this passage as we are kind of peeling back the layers of the onion. We'd be remiss if we didn't note it clearly. We must not expect Jesus to capitulate to us, to our worldview, to our convictions, to our habits, to our lifestyle. Jesus does not accommodate to us. We must conform our lives to him. We must surrender everything about our lives and submit ourselves to him. When Jesus came to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God, he was announcing salvation and judgment. Salvation for those who would repent and turn to him in faith. And judgment for those who, who persisted in their sins in opposition to God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the authoritative king. He is God's divinely appointed messenger to tell us the truth. We must hear him and heed him if we are to find God's life and blessing. The chief priests and the scribes, the spies and the Sadducees here all warn us of opposition to Jesus. Though they sought to destroy him, they were the ones who eventually were destroyed because they did not respond to him in the right way. And so we must not make the same mistake. 
Let us embrace Christ. Let us submit ourselves to Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. There's a lot here. We're thankful, Lord, for your truth, that it's all-encompassing, that it hits on every matter of life, that it even points us in directions that sometimes we don't even realize we need to turn and go. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its instruction. And I pray today, Lord, that you have shaped our minds and our hearts to be more conformed to that truth. Uh, We pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to be people who live faithfully to you. That just as we have embraced Christ and coming to know him and believing the gospel and repenting for the first time, that we continue to walk in that way. That there is no deviation from that. That there is no stopping that. That there is continuity all the way to the very end of life. I pray this morning, Lord, you give your people courage and faith to continue walking with you. And in doing so, Lord, that they would sense, that they would receive the fullness of life that you've come to give to us. And I pray this morning, Lord, for those that don't know you. I pray today that you've brought conviction of sin. I pray that you've brought truth to their minds. You've enlightened hearts, Lord. That you will bring them all the way through to salvation. Give them faith, Lord, to believe and to trust in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.